I invite you to turn with me to Revelation chapter 15. Revelation 15, we'll look at this whole chapter this morning. It's only eight verses, uh, one of the shorter chapters in the book of Revelation. But since it's been several weeks, five weeks now since we've been in the book, uh, let me begin by just reminding you some of the fundamental principles that we've been following as uh, we've tried to comprehend what proves to be a challenging book and a confusing book for many. Uh, given the nature of the apocalyptic genre, I've argued that our default mode of interpretation or our hermeneutic, if you un- know that word, just means how we interpret any given passage, um, should be to expect symbolism and metaphor. And that is, that is throughout apocalyptic literature. It's no exception in this chapter. Um, that doesn't mean the events are any less true or real, um, but they're not an exact picture of events the way they will play out in history. Right? There's imagery here that's meant to convey an emotion, maybe a dread and a terror or a fear, uh, but, it's, but it's also meant to encourage us to persevere through trials and temptations, right? to recognize the sovereign God is on his throne, right? So there's images there that are, that are for the believer to encourage and exhort them, but it's also there to prepare them for trials, for suffering that is sure to come. Um, so an understanding of the Old Testament is always helpful in finding that right balance between figurative and, and literal meanings. We, we understand how many of the uh, passages from the Old Testament are alluded to by John almost every verse, it seems, um, in these passages are, are either a direct quote or an allusion to the Old Testament. And, and so that, that helps us. If we have an understanding of the Old Testament, then we can have a better comprehension of Revelation. And so that's a bit of a challenge to us who sort of have avoided reading the Old Testament out of fear, like I didn't really get anything out of the Old Testament, so he's going to focus on the New Testament. I had a, a friend that told me that one time that he didn't really get anything out of the Old Testament, so he's just read the, the New it was like, well, how do you get anything out of the new without the old? You, you need both. They come together. It's, a, it's the whole counsel of God. It's, it's his revelation, and, and we need to rely upon both. And Scripture interprets Scripture. So another crucial piece in our interpretive method is, is making out the cyclical structure of the book. It's not simply a chronological representation of history or even of the future. Uh, but it's a cyclical structure where we see events happening in a, in a pattern where they, they each traces uh, uh, every age in between, right? So it's, it's this gospel age between Christ's first and second coming that are represented in each cycle. So having a cyclical understanding, and we, become, we come to a, a brand new cycle here in chapter 15. So that's important to know. Uh, We also need to keep in mind the situation of the original audience. And so I oftentimes refer back to those, uh, the letters that were sent to the the churches in Asia Minor, right? Those seven letters that describes the persecution they're undergoing, uh, the compromise of their faith, the ways in which they had succumbed to the the pressures of the world. Um, You know, we we know that, that for many of them, there was such tremendous pressure to conform to the idolatry of the world, that even to operate in the economy it was, was connected to idolatry. 
And, they, and so if they wanted to be successful in their community, they kind of needed to um, play, play the part and, 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 and engage in these idolatrous uh, practices. Um, and so obviously if, if they were faithful under that pressure, if they were faithful to God, then, then they were going to be persecuted. They're going to experience economic challenges uh, just to survive with their neighbors. And, and so it made it difficult for them to function in any normal capacity with their neighbors. And, and so much of this is, is true of the church today. Right? If we want to be faithful, we are, in fact, making ourselves distinct from the world. We're setting ourselves apart in such a way that, that for many, they're just uncomfortable with Christians. Um, and they don't really want to be around us. So this, this revelation from Jesus Christ, given through his, his servant John, encouraged these believers. And it encourages us, it encourages believers in every age to endure their temporary trials, looking forward to Christ's return with confidence. Right? All of it's, it's pointing forward, it's, 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 uh, it's recognizing that Christ will return and that he will establish his truth and justice in the new heavens and new earth. So this chapter serves to that end as well. So before we read it, let's ask the Lord for his help in understanding it. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this book. We do thank you for the challenges it brings. It causes us to wrestle with these truths that, that even many in the church um, have have misunderstandings or, or, or simply conflicting ways of interpreting these passages. But Lord, help us to see the big picture. Help us to keep that in mind in all of this, to see that you are on your throne, that your son is returning. Lord, that he, he will um, rescue us from this evil age. Lord, from the challenges and temptations that we face, we also recognize that it is an age of the gospel where it is going forth into the, uh, unto the nations. And so we thank you that, that missionaries are going out uh, to, to preach where the gospel has not reached. Lord, we pray for their success. And we, we see even as we, uh, as we read this chapter, Lord, the, the emphasis and the impact upon um, the gospel on the nations, that all nations will come out and worship you. Lord, we, we long for that day when we are gathered together around that glassy sea, worshiping you with representatives from every tribe and tongue and nation. Lord, it is a, a beautiful image of the church triumphant. And so, Lord, we look forward to that. May this chapter stir, stir up in us a, a hope and an expectation. We anticipate hearing from you being challenged and convicted, but also comforted by the gospel. Lord, and, and in all of it, we want to glorify you. We want to give you praise for who you are. Even as we have sung songs recognizing your attributes, we want to consider your attributes here in this, in this text, and we want to give you praise. And so we ask that you would help us to have eyes to see, help us to have ears to hear, and, and hearts that are softened to this truth, that we would be able to respond in obedience, that we'd be doers of your word and not hearers only. For your glory, we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. So read with me Revelation chapter 15. 
Then I saw another sign in heaven, great and amazing, seven angels with seven plagues, which are the last, for with them the wrath of God is finished. And I saw what appeared to be a sea of glass mingled with fire, and also those who had conquered the beast and its image and the number of its name, standing beside the sea of glass with harps of God in their hands. And they sing the song of Moses, the servants of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God the Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship you, for your righteous acts have been revealed." After this, I looked, and the sanctuary of the tent of witness in heaven was opened, and out of the sanctuary came the seven angels with seven plagues, clothed in pure bright linen, with golden sashes around their chests. And one of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls full of the wrath of God, who lives forever and ever. And the sanctuary was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power. And no one could enter the sanctuary until the seven plagues of the seven angels were finished. Amen. This is God's holy word. So as we've seen many times already, John is consistently quoting and alluding to the Old Testament. Um, Throughout his revelation, he does so in, in almost every verse of this chapter. Almost every verse contains an allusion to either a psalm or a prophet. We're not going to take the time to look back at all of those uh, influences upon this chapter, but just recognize that the song that was sung, um, you can, if you have a book that has cross-references, you can look at those on your own. There's several from, there's some Deuteronomy, Job, Hosea, Malachi, um, even uh, references to the Psalms, Psalm 86. Um, So, you can, you can study that in more in depth, but, uh, but it's something to, to keep in mind as, as we make our way through the passage. Right? That the, the return of Jesus Christ is, is not some sudden fall of judgment. Right? His, his return is, is something that has been anticipated throughout the Old and New Testament. It's the culmination of much long-suffering on the part of the redeemed, and it's the end of God's great patience. That day is coming. And so we looked at in our Advent series the hopes and fears of all the years throughout the Old Testament era were fulfilled the night of Christ's birth. Well, we could, we could say that this rec- recognizes that the hopes and fears of all the years throughout that New Testament era will culminate upon Christ's return. And so there is both worship and there's wrath that will happen upon his return. And these are there are no more important questions for us to consider than these two topics, right? Those who have prayed for and waited for this day to arrive now join together in the worship of God. And that's what we'll see in the first four verses here, the worship of God. Um, But right before you get to the section on worship, there's this introduction in verse 1. Then I saw another sign in heaven, great and amazing, Seven angels with seven plagues, which are the last, for with them the wrath of God is finished. This is the beginning of a a new cycle, as I've mentioned. And these are the last of the plagues of judgment 
not in the sense that they come chronologically last, as, as some interpret, but, but in the sense that they're the last visions that John had received of those plagues, of those judgments being poured out. And so it's, it's the order of his vision, right? I've argued that there are separate events in John's vision, um, but in, in their historical fulfillment, they occur in parallel fashion from different angles, right? So even though he sees seven seals being opened, and then after that, he sees seven trumpets being blasted, and all of these representing judgment, and then he now will see seven angels pouring out seven bowls of judgment, that doesn't mean that, that, that they all led from one to the next, right? That was just the order of, of how he saw them in his vision. But in history, we see they parallel one another, so that the the seals are happening at the same time as the trumpets and at the same time as the bulls. But there's also this growing intensification throughout, right? So that the seals impact 25% of what they affect, of, of what they, you know, the, their impact is, is 25% of the things that, the, that are being judged. Um, under the trumpets, it's a third of the region that's being affected or impacted. But now we'll see in the bulls that it's the whole region, it's the full judgment. It's, it's God's full expression of his wrath. All right, but they're happening at the same time in the sense that some are partial and leading up to that final judgment. But throughout history, these are taking place. Um, obviously, they culminate upon Christ's return. But each section of the seals, trumpets, and judgments ends with a depiction of God's final judgment. And then there are other aspects of it that we can relate to earlier times in history. So there's multiple episodes, even as we saw in Ezekiel, there's multiple episodes of fulfillment for many of these prophecies. So again, these portray complementary pictures of God's wrath. The wrath of God, it says, is finished at the end of verse 1. And it's finished in the sense that it's fully expressed by the combination of the bold judgments along with the previous seals and trumpets. When you gather all of them together, it's the full expression of God's wrath. So the, the bowls do represent the fullest expression of God's wrath upon those who refuse to worship Him. All right, so now the vision kind of pauses there. That's an introduction to this new cycle, but then it pauses to be picked up again in verse 5. And it's as if the, the tension is, is cut with another image of the alternative to idolatry. Before we simply jump into these uh, bowls being poured out in judgment, let us remind our readers that it doesn't have to be that way. You do not have to be the ones who, who endure the wrath of God. No, there's an alternative. You can be ones gathered around the glassy sea worshiping God. Right, for any audience reading this prior to Christ's return, it serves as another reminder that there is indeed a way to escape the coming wrath. And so in order to understand how this functions right, in this passage, chapter 15, why he introduces the topic of the seven angels with their plagues and then, and then has this sort of parentheses here of the church gather, triumphant gathered around the glassy sea, what is, what is John doing here? What is the vision really doing? Well, we, we saw something similing in chapter 8 uh, of Revelation. So, uh, eight chap 
or chapter 8, verse 2 said, Then I saw the seven angels who stand before God, and seven trumpets were given to them. So he, he introduces the topic of the trumpets, but then he spends the next few verses talking about some other angel, right? Before the trumpets are sounded, John witnesses another angel that's standing beside an altar, and he's got a golden censer in his hand, and he's hearing the prayers of the saints that are being lifted up for their vindication, right? The, there's a mixture of both the martyrs that are under the altar as well as the, just the souls of the saints who are crying out to God for relief, uh, for, for his, his, really his, the coming of his judgment upon those who have persecuted them. And so this angel is seen as, as offering up the smoke of incense that's mingled with the prayer of the saints on this golden altar, which is before God's throne. And the smoke from the incense, together with the prayers of the saints, are offered to God. And then that angel hurls fire from the altar upon the earth. So there's this picture of, of the prayers of the saints and the fact that God hears those prayers. And in response to those prayers, the angel hurls fire, obviously being instructed by God to hurl judgment upon the inhabitants of the earth. So the same sequence of events is taking place here. There's an introductory statement followed by this interlocking reference to the saints. In order to show the link between the activity of the saints, in chapter 8, it was prayer. Here in chapter 15, it's worship. But the link between prayer and worship and then the judgment that God carries out upon those not engaged in the activity of the church. All right, so this cycle is interrupted by a vision of the church triumphant standing beside the sea of glass in verse 2. I saw what appeared to be a sea of glass mingled with fire and also those who had conquered the beast in its image and the number of its name standing beside the sea of glass with harps of God in their hands. Well, the sea is typically a symbol of chaos and evil. I've, I've mentioned that earlier when we looked at chapter 4. We see this same sea represented, but it's tranquil. It's glassy. The sea is calm. It's not chaotic. It's, it's not evil. And you might recall, the, uh, like this is, this is typical of the sea being evil and chaos in ancient literature. That includes Scripture. Even in uh, the previous chapter, chapter 13, uh, the dragon summons the first beast out of the sea. And so the, the representation of evil is coming out of the sea of evil and then pouring out a river or a flood of evil upon the church that is fleeing from the, dra- from the presence of that beast. And so the evil sea has now been subdued in heaven by a sovereign God who is seated upon his throne. And we'll come back to this uh, in, a, in a bit. But the conquering saints are now heard singing a song of praise in verses 3 and 4. And just as the Israelites did after crossing the Red Sea, and it says that they sing the song of Moses. They sing the song of Moses and the song of the Lamb. Well, the song of Moses was what, what they sang in Exodus 15. As soon as they crossed safely the Red Sea and they witnessed Pharaoh and his ar- uh, Pharaoh's army being destroyed as the sea 
closed in upon them, their response to that rescue is to worship God. And, and the things that they worship in Exodus 15 are remarkable. They don't focus upon themselves. They don't focus upon their, their own relief. They focus upon God and his attributes. They worship him as almighty. They recognize his power. And so that is the, the song they're singing here, but it's also the song of the Lamb. Right. So we find many similarities to our own wilderness experience of trials and temptation. Right? The Israelites stood on the shore of the Red Sea. And, and imagine, at this point, they, they've, they've witnessed a miracle already. The, the sea parted. Um, actually, before that, let's say they're, they're on the, the shore. They're witnessing Pharaoh's army charging against them. They're filled with terror and fear. They see God open up the waters, and they pass through. And now they're on the other side, and maybe they're still filled with fear because they see Pharaoh's army charging right on through as well. It's not until they see the full judgment of God covering up this, this army, right, where, where they finally feel the freedom to breathe. They recognize that they have escaped, right? That the harm uh, that was imminent at that moment in their lives had been thwarted. And many of us go through those same kinds of trials, right? We can expect to enjoy God's rescue in his perfect timing. Like the Israelites who stood safely on the bank of the Red Sea, the church triumphant here is standing victoriously on the bank of the Sea of Glass, praising their God and Savior. And so like the song of Moses, the church in glory praises God's attributes. They declare God's omnipotence, his faithfulness, his justice and truth, his holiness and his righteousness. And I love what Stephen Rees says, this is the distinctive note of Reformed Christianity. We are obsessed with God himself. We are overwhelmed by his majesty, his beauty, his holiness, his grace. Worship worship songs are about God, right, and his greatness. We are are almost brought into a different sphere when we come in corporate worship because we we can remove the distractions of our own fears and worldly cares and we come to just focus upon God to just lift him up and to recognize his goodness and greatness. God alone is worthy to judge in any ultimate sense of the word. Right? He alone has the authority to save and to condemn. He alone had the authority to, to part the Red Sea and then to close it in his timing. And so his, revert, his word also reveals why and how he accomplishes those purposes. But notice, it's not a, it's not a, uh, this is a, a single song that is being sung, and yet it's referred to as the song of Moses and the song of the Lamb. It's not two different songs that they're, you know, like they go back to Exodus 15 and, and sing that song, and then they sing this song or something that's some other song that's the song of the Lamb. No, they're singing one song, Moses and the Israelite uh, Exodus out of slavery in Egypt always pointed forward to the Lamb as the fulfillment of the true exodus out of slavery to sin. And so God no longer maintains this distinction between Jews and Gentiles. We're one body 
in Christ, we've all become children of God under the new covenant. And so this will culminate upon Christ's return when representatives from every tribe and tongue and nation will gather together beside the sea of glass. That's the image here of the saints singing this song in heaven. Jesus referred to his own death as a, a departure in Luke chapter 9. Literally, it's, it's exodus. He ca- calls his own death an exodus. His, his shed blood upon the cross redeemed his people from their sin. Just as the blood of the Passover lamb redeemed the first sons of Israel, the firstborn sons of Israel. But I also want us to, to notice uh, another important detail from this section, which I, I didn't take time to look at earlier. That's the fact that the sea of glass is mingled with fire. And what does that mean? Why, why is the sea, the glassy sea in heaven now mingled with fire? Well, this, this certainly partially anticipates the coming wrath of God that's about to be poured out in the seven bowls. Uh, in the following chapter, but that fire here is controlled in heaven. It's controlled by the same one who also calmed the raging sea. The death of Christ has satisfied the justice of God and put an end to the power of evil. That fire always represents judgment here in Revelation. Fire represents God bringing forth his judgment, and here in heaven, it can only represent the judgment that had been poured out upon his son. That the fire is not removed from our view. It remains as a symbol of the judgment that fell upon the Son of God in the place of all who stand beside the sea lifting their song of praise. Right, the fire is a reminder of our union with Christ who paid the penalty, suffering under the wrath of God in our place. He endured the fire in his death on the cross for us. His substitutionary death enables us by his spirit to persevere until we are safely standing beside the sea and fire in glory. And so those who've been rescued by the true and better Moses, Jesus Christ, are now filled with an obsession for knowing God and his attributes. And that will carry us in throughout eternity. We have become primarily concerned with understanding him rather than trying to make sense of every change in culture or, or every event in history, right? we're, we're not going to be able to make sense of that. We can lose our minds trying to preserve some conservative value that the culture has abandoned. Uh, or we can renew our minds as they are engaged in transforming spiritual worship, as Paul tells us in Romans 12. So we can commit ourselves to some political goal or agenda, or we can recognize our much greater calling to participate in the great commission that Christ has given us in Matthew 28. Now, that doesn't mean we neglect our civil duties or our, 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 our duties as citizens of this nation, but I think so, so oftentimes that is what we're preoccupied with, the things of this world. All right, we need to be reminded of what our first calling is. And so when we stand upon the shore of the sea of glass, we will not regret the time we devoted to the worship of God here on earth. We'll never think at that moment, I should have, I should have neglected worshiping as often as I did. I shouldn't have gone to church so much. 
shouldn't have made it so much of a routine in my life. I should have just taken it a little more flippantly. No, we'll never think that. And when Christ returns, those who are not ushered into his eternal worship will undergo the wrath of God. That's the other part of this passage that you cannot ignore. And verses 5 through 8 details the wrath of God. And so it's shifting our view from this glassy sea to the heavenly temple, and the time of pouring out the bold judgments has now arrived when the sanctuary was opened Previously in chapter eleven nineteen, it also represented judgment that was coming out. And so these angels, they exit the temple. They're wearing linens that are associated with priestly duties. Um, it also reminds us of the description of the Son of Man in chapter 1, verse 13, which probably indicates their identification with him and the fact that he is the source of, their, of the judgment they're about to pour out. Uh, that they are operating uh, as his agents. And so the implication is that God's judgment is not some arbitrary activity, but it's a necessary response to the presence of sin. Uh, the holiness of God that the saints have been worshiping and singing about in their song, that holiness demands justice. Justice being another attribute that they worship. Right, so this is the, the acting out. This is the response to that worship that's being given. One of the four living creatures gives to the seven angels, seven bowls full of the wrath of God. Just as the, the previous judgments spanned the New Testament era between Christ's first and second coming, so do the bowl judgments, and we'll see that more next week. But these judgments fall upon those who bore the mark of the beast and worshiped its image. That, we'll see that in chapter 16, next week, verse 2. So the first angel went and poured out his bowl on the earth, and harmful and painful swords came upon the people who bore the mark of the beast and worshiped its image. And so we've already seen that the mark of the beast was Satan's counterfeit to those who had been sealed by God in Revelation chapter 7, verse 3. Remember, Satan is always trying to counterfeit the true worship He's got an alternative for people to come and receive a mark instead of the seal of God. And so that, that, that mark of the beast indicates identification with the world in opposition to God. It, it's unbelievers that inhabit every age, right, all the way to the end, just as saints are represented as well. Uh, in every age. So their judgment has, has already been determined. The judgment of, of those who identify themselves with the beast. Their judgment's already been determined, but it's not finally consummated until Christ returns. In its fullest sense. So this introduction to the bold judgments includes or, or concludes with a reference to the glory of God filling the sanctuary with smoke. In verse 8. And this smoke prevented anyone from entering the sanctuary until the plagues of God's wrath were completed. And this, this was something that, that confused me for a minute. I, I, you know, why, what is implied here? Well, I think what, what the implication is that, that there was no more mediation available. No one could enter into the tabernacle and stay God's hand of judgment any longer. The, the time for judgment had come, it had arrived, 
and no one was going to interrupt that judgment that was being carried out. No more prayers of intercession would be heard. Repentance was no longer available. And so we live in exile away from our our heavenly home and, and the smoke of God's glory in this moment prevents us from seeing him face to face while we remain in this sinful flesh. The, because of our own sin, we justly deserve to receive the plagues that are about to be poured out upon the earth. Right? We have all been affected by the curse of sin, and that curse culminates upon Christ's return and the fullest expression of his judgment. But thankfully, God has provided a way of escape. Christ drank the cup of God's wrath, which actually in Isaiah, he uses the term cup and bowl interchangeably. And much of this is a reference back to the imagery of Isaiah, uh, recognizing the, the cup and the bowl of God's wrath. So Christ drank that cup of God's wrath for all who worship him. But for believers, that means that God's unapproachable presence here as his smoke fills this sanctuary, it delays the culmination of our final joy and rest. Right? Yet we, we must keep in mind that it's God's elimination of every last vestige of evil that also secures our final joy and rest. This judgment has to be carried out to its fullest extent if any of us are going to enjoy that final joy and rest, if any sin or rebellion remains in heaven, then we would not be able to enjoy unhindered praise of worshiping God face to face that all of us deeply crave. And so remember the relationship between the judgment of God and the angel who received the prayers from the saints. God heard the prayers of the saints for the vindication of God to be carried out, and then his judgments, his judgments were the answer to those prayers. Resigui says, twice the bowls are said to be golden. When the prayers of the saints are offered to God in golden bowls in chapter 5, verse 8, and then when the plagues are poured out of golden bowls in chapter 15, verse 7. So the verbal thread is significant, for the prayers of the saints are instrumental in setting the world in its proper order. God's justice is linked to the prayers of Christians. Does that, does, is that evidenced by your experience? Or do you long for Christ's return? Do you pray for his justice? Do you desire to worship God face to face? Is this taste here, as inadequate as it is, this taste of heavenly worship, is that something that you crave throughout the week? These are the desires every Christian should possess. And so don't be distracted by temporary trials. Don't be hindered from true worship by the many counterfeit alternatives, whether it be money, career, politics, or you name it. All right, here is the, the primary question you should be concerned with answering. Are you trusting in the only one who has calmed the raging sea and endured the flame of God's wrath in your place? Do you trust him? Are you worshiping him? 
If so, then let us leave all, pick up our cross and follow him until he returns, where we will enjoy that worship face to face for all eternity. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for this vision that is both a, a comforting reminder of the, of the worship that awaits in glory, as well as a, a representation or a, a, a burden that's placed upon those who do not know you. Lord, and until Christ returns, there is opportunity to repent. There is time for people to repent, to, to turn away from their sin and to turn to, to you. Lord, and so we pray that, that that would be the choice of many, even this morning. They would repent of their sins, that they would place their hope and faith in Christ alone, that they would worship him, and that they would begin to taste a craving and a desire for that heavenly praise and worship that we have pictured in this chapter. Lord, even as we respond in song, recognizing the incredible mercy that we have received in Christ Jesus, Lord, we pray that it would stir us up to pick up our cross and follow him, to be willing to sacrifice anything and everything if it means that we might know you more, if it means that we might follow you more closely, and that we might be prepared for that glorious inheritance that awaits. Lord, we ask this in the name of Christ and for your glory. Amen.